Hi, this is Leah Remini and Mike Rinda. And we are very excited to announce that we are finally doing a podcast. Yes, and the name is Scientology Fair Game, everybody. Scientology Fair Game. And thank you to all of you because we tweeted out, like, should we do a podcast? What of everything? Overwhelming yes. Amazing response. Listen to Scientology Fair Game on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Devin Leary. And I'm Carolina Barlow. And we're here to tell you to dump him. Break up with your boyfriend. And we want you to listen to our podcast, True Romance, every week, where we talk about our love lives and the love lives of others. Please join our exes, who we know will also be listening. Like Kyle. Kyle, are you there? Hey, babe, how's life? No, you look good, though. Me? Oh my God, stop. Please, I haven't even gotten a haircut in like three months. Okay, please help us pay for Carolina's psychiatrist bills by listening on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I want true romance. Welcome to Monster, DC Sniper, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. Listener discretion is advised. Three weeks into the D.C. sniper investigation, police connected a fingerprint from an Alabama crime scene to two names, John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo. Last episode, we explored Muhammad's story. After his wife asked for a divorce, he disappeared with his three children. This episode, who was Lee Boyd Malvo, the 17-year-old from Jamaica, and how was he connected to Muhammad? At the time, investigators were stumped, but years later, we finally started to get the answers. Many of those answers came from the work of criminologist and criminal profiler Anthony Mioli. Mioli spent nine years corresponding with Lee and listening to his side of the story. Mioli recorded a series of phone calls with Lee titled Interview with the DC Sniper, which you will hear clips from throughout this episode. Lee also wrote an autobiography, which Mioli helped edit and publish. Diary of the DC Sniper is a verbatim transcript from Lee Boyd Malvo, word for word. This is a very rare time where you're able to understand how an individual develops from the day he's born to the day he was arrested for one of the most sensational crimes of our modern time. The takeaway from it is not the grisly nature of what happened at the end, but what led him to that. Lee Boyd Malvo was born February 18th. 1985 in Kingston, Jamaica. He was born to Leslie Malvo and Una James, his mother. He took the name Malvo from his father, but they were never formally married, at least according to Lee. At the time Lee was born, his mom was 21 and his father was 37, so there was a 16-year age gap. In Kingston, that wasn't tremendously unusual, but that separation of age did lead to many differences between how their relationship developed. Lee remembers his father, Leslie, as kind and permissive. Lee says he spent his early years on a tricycle. 
and Leslie would pull him through the neighborhood by a rope tied to the tricycle's handlebars. Lee's mother, Una, on the other hand, was the disciplinarian. Una was very strict in many ways. She would be calm, cool, and collected one moment, and then violent the next. Lee told Mioli that when his mother got angry, she would sometimes beat him to the point of drawing blood. At the same time, she did care for him and she did provide for the family, but she was gone most of the time, so it would not be unusual for Lee to be fending for himself at a very young age. One day, while she was out at work, he was left alone, and he was awfully young. He was, you know, five, six years old. She had some jade figurines that she kept around the house. They were small, trivial objects to some, but to her, they meant something. He was playing with an airplane and running around the house and bumped into one of these jade figurines, and it broke. They break one of these things, and I'm crying. I'm crying before she comes home. He was expecting a beating. He knew she was going to hit him and hit him hard. She came into the house. She shouted me and charged towards me. She came home in a rage and was about to wail off on Lee. And his father stepped in. And he grabbed me up. He said, this is the person. This is the thing. That can be replaced. He cannot. You know, this is a thing pointing to the object, and this is your son, and you need to be able to separate those two right now. Whether that message rang true with Una remains unclear. My father was like the go-between. He was my protector, because he would always know what to do or what to say in those moments. It really stuck with him that this is what a father does. A father protects his child and he had some fond memories of his father until eventually his father left him, and that's when things started to go sour. There is a ruthless person on the loose. What unnerves this community the most is the randomness of the murders. Ordinary people doing ordinary things. They killed the five people in one day and then went on the rampage for the next month. It is quite a mystery. The police say they have never had a crime quite like this. Be careful. These guys are using weapons that are going to go right straight through our bulletproof vests. There's a white van just went by with two guys in it. From iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, this is Monster, DC Sniper. Criminologist Anthony Mioli has made a career of interviewing some of America's most heinous criminals. I literally have spoken or written to over 300 serial killers. What I find most interesting about them is that they are people. I don't harp on the horrific nature of their crimes, but rather try to learn who they were and how the crimes came about. Mioli says people often completely write off killers as just evil people or monsters. But he thinks that's a mistake. As soon as we find out who did it, we can't get enough of how evil or how monstrous this person is without understanding what it was that brought the person to that particular moment in time. Unfortunately, they are not monsters. They are not some mystical beast. Unfortunately, these are human beings with human DNA, and we have to be willing to accept that and understand 
that just as there are some fantastic human beings who do some incredible things and change people's lives, there are other human beings who go down a wrong path and take people's lives. It's not to condone what they did. Make no mistake there, it's not to condone at all what they did. As a criminologist, Mioli thinks that if we want to prevent these sorts of crimes from happening in the future, we need to understand the people that commit them and examine their lives. That's why he's corresponded with so many serial killers. Mioli was particularly interested to speak with Lee Boyd Malvo. He first wrote to Lee in 2003, but starting a correspondence proved challenging. Letters that I sent would be mailed back and saying the inmate is not here. So it took a while, and it wasn't until May of 2005 where I received his first letter. What was interesting was it was a two-page letter, handwritten in black ink. Normally, it takes a long time for many of these individuals to trust others. But Mioli says Lee's first letter to him was different. It was very personal. I think that's what struck me. He even left the letter by saying, wherever you want to go from here, I'm willing to go with you. So that's sort of where it all began. We were corresponding one to two letters a week. We did that for about four years, and then I had the ability to speak to him on the phone. My first phone call with him was in 2010. It struck me immediately how intelligent he actually was. His formal education stopped far before college, but he was far more well-read than most of those who I knew who held master's degrees. Maybe the single most well-read individual out of over 300 inmates that I've written to. During these years of communicating back and forth, Mioli says Lee asked him to help edit and publish his autobiography. Mioli agreed. What came across with Lee Boyd Malvo's intellect, his ability to jump from topic to topic, he knew anything and everything about anything related to the weather. It could be related to inmate rights. It could be related to racial tensions. And that was one dynamic that we talked a lot about. As a Caucasian male, obviously we came from two different worlds. Zara Burden is a journalist and host of the Jamaican news program 18 Degrees North. She was also interested in understanding Lee Boyd Malvo's roots. Our first interview back in 2013 was an interview with Lee Boyd Malvo. He agreed to do the interview, he said, because it was allowing him to speak to his Jamaican people. You know, it's a strange kind of thing. Jamaicans are for Jamaicans. We cuss each other on this rock, but we back the best of us and we disgrace together the worst of us. It was important for us to understand how somebody raised on our soil could leave here and go to the United States where most Jamaicans go to become prosperous. And he, instead of going that route, he instead chose to kill Americans. And we don't have any hate for Americans. We love Americans in Jamaica. So why would you be motivated to carry out such an atrocity on your fellow man? That was the big question. He explained violence was something that occurred constantly. This is criminologist Anthony Mioli again. There would often be one or two parents on a whole block watching 15, 20 kids. 
yes, an aunt might be present, but is that aunt going to give as much attention as a mom would? Is that uncle going to have enough energy to take care and discipline that child in the right way? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Often, the only way, sadly, to keep them in line was to know that if they did something bad, well, a beating was coming. And so it wasn't uncommon for Lee to see violence or to experience violence. In his autobiography, Lee says one time when he was around five, his father brought home a paycheck that was short on cash. His mother suspected he was cheating on her and accused him of giving the money to another woman. This led to an argument, which escalated into a violent fight. Here's Lee. My mother and father got in an altercation. My dad basically assaulted my mother. He punched her in the mouth several times. Lee says that two days later, he was sitting on a bed, watching his dad clean a mirror on the bedroom dresser, when his mother snuck up from behind. My mom tried to chop the hand off with a machete. His mom had picked up a machete and was about to attack his father from behind when Lee yells out to his father. He turns him up, and that's when he saw the reflection in the mirror. He turned and she missed his wrist, but she basically severed off the entire thumb. Una strikes Leslie's thumb and nearly severs his thumb with the machete. It was hard to understand because, I mean, this, this is my mother, this is my father, so... Lee was very emotional from that moment because he was too young to know what it meant to have an infidelity. He had no idea what that was. But he knew that his mother and his father had severe arguments to the point to where his mother would be willing to almost kill his father. So he saw violence at a very early age and continued to do so for many years. They always get in fights. That's just, that's just the household. My mom caught at least a times. Eventually, Una had had enough of Leslie's infidelities with various women on the island. And she told Leslie to decide whether to be with her or to move on to the other women. She used to work in the Cayman Islands as a, as a contractor, making hotels and stuff like that. And on one occasion when he left, word got to my mom that he was cheating yet again. So... She decided to split. She moved out of the house and just disappeared, didn't tell anyone. He didn't know where to find them. Lee says Una packed up all their things and emptied out the bank accounts. She left with Lee to start a new life and didn't tell Leslie where they'd gone. And this left Lee pretty much without a father from about the age of nine. He did find them after a couple months. I think to a certain extent, he took it out on me. Didn't want to deal with me after that or have anything to do with me. He just pretty much abandoned me. Here's journalist Zara Burton again. His father was absent for a large part, and emotionally, that created a void. There's a lot of hurt for youngsters in Jamaica. A lot of it is based on absent parents that allow predators to come and prey whether it's sexually, emotionally, or recruiting in gangs. Youths in this country, in Jamaica, youths all over the world, who have no role model, who feel like they have no purpose. It's so easy for a gang leader or even an organization like ISIS to recruit and to give them a sense of purpose. 
And so it is so important that parents in Jamaica and the world over ensure that the time is there, that the investment is there in their children, and that when they see them around bad company, that they steer them in a different direction. Hi, I'm Leah Remini, and I am joined by Mike Rinder, and we are very excited to announce that we are continuing our journey with a new podcast called Scientology Fair Game. What is Fair Game? Right. Fair Game is a term in Scientology that, that is used to describe or was used to describe the taking care of, and that's the euphemistic term, okay. threats and enemies of Scientology. What it really is, is a series of writings and policies, directives by L. Ron Hubbard that lay out how you go about destroying someone who is an enemy of Scientology. Listen to Scientology Fair Game on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In the high-stakes world of crime and justice, understanding the legal system isn't optional, it's critical. Hi, I'm Philip Holloway, host of the podcast Sworn from Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. We've got an all-new season, and this time we're tackling the problems directly. We'll look at faulty forensic science, false confessions, and mandatory minimum prison sentences. California has the largest prison system in the United States. The United States has the largest prison system in the world. In some cases, capital murder cases, just preventing a death sentence and getting life without parole was a win. People just want justice so bad that they're willing to accept everything at face value when they need to really look deeper and really stand up when they hear about an injustice that's happening. Season two of Sworn is underway and it's available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After leaving Leslie, Una struggled to make ends meet she moved with Lee to Endeavor, a rural town north of Kingston, where they lived in a small home. It was pretty much a shack. It was just enough to get by. They suffered to often have proper plumbing. Una did not have the money to fix things. Despite being strapped for cash, Una was able to get a loan and open a small grocery store. It was a sundry shop, so to say. Una's store went well until a power outage ruined all of the refrigerated goods. She didn't have enough money saved to restock the inventory, so she was forced to close the store. And unable to find work in Endeavor, she and Lee moved back to Kingston. For Lee, this was the first of many moves. In Jamaica, it's not uncommon for people to be somewhat transient. In the, let's say, late 80s, early 90s, Work was very hard to come by, especially for a woman who was not building homes or something or, or doing labor. So it was not uncommon for Una to look for work at various places and, and move around so that she could support the two of them. And according to Lee, his mother would do whatever it took to get what she needed. When she purchased a home, she knew that one of the men who was selling the land was prone to drinking alcohol and she waited until he was uh, inebriated and he signed over another acre 
for a relatively paltry sum to Una so that she could have more land. She was a smart woman in, in knowing what she needed to do in order to get things done. And that often meant moving for work. Mioli says Lee bounced around 15 to 20 times in his adolescence. Sometimes she took Lee with her. Other times she left him with family and friends. In many cases, Lee would refer to the family as cousins. They may not have been cousins legally, but just friends who his mom would leave him with. And then she would be gone for several months. So yes, he would be completely abandoned, if you will, by today's standards, while his mom looked for more steady work. And this was at the unfortunate negative impact to Lee's life. There's a huge problem in this country where barrel kids are concerned. They're called barrel kids. Barrel just means that your parents, to show love and affection, will send a barrel filled with goodies, with school products, with whatever is necessary to allow you to have things. Journalist Zara Burden says that many times parents seek better opportunities abroad, but they can't take their families with them. Jamaica is a tough spot to earn a dollar, I'm telling you. And so you get an opportunity to go to the States to earn a dollar, you're going to take it. For a lot of Jamaicans, Cayman, Turks and Caicos, Bahamas, those are the hot spots where we go to for better economic opportunity. But guess what? Sometimes your status there ain't fully sorted. And so you're there kind of illegally, you overstay your visa and you're working. And all you can do to show your love is to get on Skype, get on the phone and send a barrel. But invariably, some of them are not being supervised in their homes. And so there definitely is a deficit in their emotional development their ability to be disciplined. The way that it manifests in this country is our crime level, which remains extremely high compared to maybe other populations that are similar in size. Jamaica's homicide rate consistently ranks as one of the highest in the world. The most brutal individuals sometimes on the street creating havoc are the teens because they've been recruited. The wrong people are there to pick up the slack where parenting has failed. Over the next few years, Lee bounced between relatives' apartments. According to Mioli, Lee jumped around anywhere from 15 to 20 times during that period. His biggest struggle in life was between the ages of five and nine. Those were the times where he had moved from various places and he had seen a lot of violence, experienced a lot of violence. So it made it very difficult for him to understand what life really looked like as he approached his, you know, early teen years. I remember I was sitting down writing my journal, and I said, I mean, I have no one. I mean, if I walk off a bridge today, no one gives a fuck. Life is cold, life is hard. I decided that I would never cry and I would never complain about anything. I'm going to find a way, because if I don't find a way, I'm lost. He did not have the stability that most children need during the formative years of his life. At the most, he had nothing. 
he didn't have his parents, he didn't have any structure, and all he had was instability. So it probably had a traumatic impact on him knowing that um, this was going to be how my life is. It's going to be a tumultuous, violent life that I'm going to live. And he started to develop a lot of anger inside himself. Around this time, Lee went searching for his father in Kingston. The way Lee remembers it, he eventually found Leslie walking down the street. Lee told him that Una had left him behind to go work on another island, hoping that his father would take him in. When I, I went to see him, he had this look in his face like, I'm happy to see you, but why are you here? I mean, I could tell that five minutes earlier, he did not care if I had eaten, if I was safe. I mean, none of that. He told me he couldn't find me. He had all these excuses. He gave me some bus fare and um, sent me on my way. I gave it to a bomb. And Lee took that as, I think that's it with my father. That's about the only acknowledgement I'm going to get. When later asked about the incident, Lee's father said he didn't take him in because he didn't want to re-engage with Una. Leslie Malvo wouldn't see his son again until he was an adult. Despite all these challenges, Lee worked hard at school. He was intelligent and made good grades. And although she was gone for long stretches of time, Lee's mother watched closely over his performance in school. I used to be terrified to go home because as soon as I go home, I hear my name through the door. Lee! I honestly think that Lee, if there was a word for it, I think Lee was more of an academic, really, than he gave himself credit for. He knew that his mom expected 100%. Anything under 100%, he was going to get punished. So he would often sit outside the home, waiting to go inside. And be petrified to go in. I just didn't want to go home, but eventually I had to go home. So I went home. She was waiting for me. She had uh, this very thick leather belt. He explained that for every incorrect answer he got, he would receive three blows from a belt. If he got 10 incorrect answers for the day, he would get hit 30 times. He knew that because he knew if he had a bad day or a bad grade on his paper, what was going to happen when those doors opened. I mean, he hit me everywhere, face, the back, the neck, me everywhere. I just kept looking her in the eye, and I just would not cry. She just kept going and going. There was a look on her face that was a look of hate. When Lee was about 12, his mom left Kingston again for work on another island. So he went to live with a teacher, who he called Aunt Simone. She had a much more humanistic approach. She would sit down and tell Lee exactly what she expected of him. Lee was sort of shocked. She treated him almost like a young adult. She always would encourage Lee, explain to Lee the things that he did well and the things that he needed to work on. She didn't raise her voice at him, which was something that he hadn't really experienced before. That separated her from Una in Lee's mind. He didn't have to worry about that beating formula of three times a day. There was no more verbal and physical abuse going on. Aunt Simone had intimate knowledge of the beatings that Lee had taken because Lee had told her. And I think 
in her own way, even though she wasn't his mother, she knew that Una was not good for him at that time in his life. So she did everything to protect him from going back to her by trying to sort of say, I, I got this, I can take care of Lee. This was a time where he finally had a little bit of love in his life. Mioli says that Lee was often very affected by small things, words, gestures, or the tone of a person's voice. He even spoke about the most simple phrase that Aunt Simone would say. She would say, good morning, Lee, and that would mean the world to him because he didn't get that from his mom. He did not get that from Leslie. He got that from a woman who he really barely knew at that time, and yet she was willing to take him in as her son. His life looked much more like a regular child. He was now experiencing the ability to, to play with board games. She would read Bible lessons to him. She would show him how to do homework. She even showed him what he could be if he did further education. But it wouldn't last. Eventually, Una showed up at Simone's house and demanded that Lee come back and live with her. When it came to a head to where he had to choose between Aunt Simone and his mother, he, he really didn't have a choice because he was still a minor. Una had the final say because she was, you know, his mother. And unfortunately, he had to leave. There's nothing Aunt Simone could do about it. She couldn't protect him anymore. You know, reluctantly, she had to give him up. Una came to realize how much happier Lee had felt without her. She resented him for wanting to stay with Simone instead of coming back to live with her. So once he was reunited with Una, he would face daily beatings, sometimes twice a day, just simply for no reason at all. So now it had escalated with the violence at home. It went from being a good morning with Aunt Simone to an unknown hellish day with his own mother. Eventually, Lee reached his breaking point. I decided to open a hand myself. We're at the house and I took a, a makeshift rope, walked down to the mango tree and attempted to hang myself. The suicide attempt with Lee occurred, according to him, around age 13. He had been on a farm with Una and a caretaker who lived on this farm. He went up in a tree and sat there for quite some time debating what is his life going to be like. If my life is going to be like this for the rest of my life, I don't want to live it. So he finally decided that he was going to take his life. When he made the knot, placed it around his neck, he yelled his mom's name as loud as he could. He wanted to make sure that she saw him. He wanted her to worry about him. He wanted to see what look was on her face when she knew that her son was about to take his life. And that's a very telling moment because you would think that a mom would have finally realized, wow, you know, look what I've done to my son. But Una does not have that inward-looking moment, and her demeanor doesn't change a whole lot. You know, she did say, are you okay? Do you want to talk? 
but I think the damage was so far done and the story as he describes it was he let go of the tree and just as the rope begins to tighten the caretaker on the property grabs him and makes sure that it doesn't snap his neck they undo the rope and untie him but he still harbored that feeling that he was willing to take his life which is very significant he had internalized the anger he didn't take it out on his mom he didn't stab or shoot his mother he didn't stab or shoot anyone else he took it all out on himself and from what we know with child psychology if a child is willing to take their life at 13 they've suffered dramatic trauma in order to come to that place because that's a very early age to grasp the idea that if I jump off this branch and this rope tightens I'm dead and yet his mother was not really willing to change her ways the worst thing was two days later she beat me to a bloody pulp threw a new piece of rope at me pointed to the tree and tell me go ahead and kill your fucking self go ahead do it but he said for whatever reason he had even lost the courage to attempt suicide again he just couldn't do it anymore Lee had no one. He had lost Aunt Simone, and both of his parents had given up on him. But he was about to meet the man who would take on the role of his new father. In the high-stakes world of crime and justice, understanding the legal system isn't optional, it's critical. Hi, I'm Philip Holloway, host of the podcast Sworn from Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. We've got an all-new season, and this time we're tackling the problems directly. We'll look at faulty forensic science, false confessions, and mandatory minimum prison sentences. California has the largest prison system in the United States. The United States has the largest prison system in the world. In some cases, capital murder cases, just preventing a death sentence and getting life without parole was a win. People just want justice so bad that they're willing to accept everything at face value when they need to really look deeper and really stand up when they hear about an injustice that's happening. Season two of Sworn is underway and it's available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the high-stakes world of crime and justice, understanding the legal system isn't optional, it's critical. Hi, I'm Philip Holloway, host of the podcast Sworn from Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. We've got an all-new season, and this time we're tackling the problems directly. We'll look at faulty forensic science, false confessions, and mandatory minimum prison sentences. California has the largest prison system in the United States. The United States has the largest prison system in the world. In some cases, capital murder cases, just preventing a death sentence and getting life without parole was a win. People just want justice so bad that they're willing to accept everything at face value when they need to really look deeper and really stand up when they hear about an injustice that's happening. Season two of Sworn is underway and it's available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When Lee was 15, 
He and Una moved to the island of Antigua. Lee says that Antigua brought more of the same verbal and physical abuse. Meanwhile, his mother had started a new business there. But not long after moving to Antigua, Una took another job on a different island. She left Lee alone there for almost a year. He had to steal and sell bootleg CDs to get by. My mother actually prepared me for this by leaving me alone so many times. I had time to practice. I mean, I learned how to hustle. I take an empty stainless steel drum, go down to the beach, make some jerk chicken, um, sell it. Um, I collect cans and bottles. I pretty much did whatever I had to. In Antigua, Lee had to walk several miles to school. Each day, he passed by the Zaza Electronics Store. On one occasion, he stopped in. Inside, a tall man was watching his young son play a flight simulator video game on one of the store's computers. They both had American accents and were joking around and laughing. Lee was not used to seeing this kind of affection between a father and son. I wanted that relationship. I wanted to be a father like him. He was confident. I mean, there were not a lot of fathers there with their sons. The cuter things about him that were different that I admired, and I just, I just found the one from a distance. I actually never spoke to him. That man was John Muhammad. It was here, in Antigua, that John had run away from Tacoma, Washington, with his three children in tow. John had originally heard of the island from an acquaintance in Tacoma. That man had a cousin who worked in Antigua as a travel agent. John thought he could start a new life there with his kids. And so they moved there in March of 2000. John was sort of the Pied Piper of many children on the island. He was known for doing good things for kids. He had money that others did not on the island, and, and that was something that Lee sort of looked up to. But what we learned is that John's money was not necessarily legal. What he was doing was illegally importing goods, services, and even people into the United States. John had created a business of smuggling Caribbean islanders into America. He would help them forge passports and ensure travel to the Florida coast. And in the year 2000, one of John's new clients was Una, Lee's mother. A lot of people don't understand that John actually got Una into the United States. There was a presumed relationship as far as whether or not it was a sexual one, that I'm not quite sure. He met him for like three weeks. He met him in September, and three weeks later in October, she was in the U.S. Una left Lee behind and got a job at a restaurant in Fort Myers, Florida. She promised to bring him to America when she had more money. But eventually, Una stopped sending rent for Lee to live on, so he was forced to move into a rundown shack behind the house where they'd been staying. Things only got worse for Lee. In November of 2000, he fell ill with rheumatic fever. Lying alone, sick, in the dark, Lee felt abused, abandoned, and completely resigned. And then, in the hot, unforgiving darkness, a light burst through. The door of the shack opened. A tall man stepped inside. Then the man came closer. He leaned down and grabbed Lee's hand. 
it was the American man who smuggled his mother into the United States. The same man he'd seen that day in the electronic shop, playing with his son. John Muhammad had come for him. Next time on Monster, DC Sniper. Miss Muhammad, if he gets across the border with your children, there will be nothing we can do. So you, are you telling me the reason why I don't have my children and won't be to keep my children because I don't have the proper paperwork yet? If we do not address the systemic failures that occurred in this case, it's entirely likely that there are all kinds of John Muhammads out there wandering the streets. He had me kill myself over and over. He told me the old person has to die. Lee Malvo has to die because Lee Malvo cannot do this. Monster DC Sniper is a 15-episode podcast hosted by Tony Harris and produced by iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio, alongside producers Trevor Young, Ben Kiebrick, and Josh Thane. Payne Lindsay and Donald Albright are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV, alongside producers Meredith Stedman and Christina Dana. Original music is by Makeup and Vanity Set. The audio of Lee Boyd Malvo you heard in the Next Time segment comes from a 2012 interview by journalist Josh White and was provided courtesy of The Washington Post. If you haven't already, be sure to check out the first two seasons, Atlanta Monster and Monster the Zodiac Killer. If you have questions or comments, email us at monster at iheartmedia.com or you can call us at 1-833-285-6667. Thanks for listening. In the high stakes world of crime and justice, understanding the legal system is not optional. It's critical. Hi, I'm Philip Holloway, host of the podcast Sworn from Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. Last season, we looked at a number of crimes and cases that highlighted issues in our legal system. This season, we have a new approach. We're tackling the problems directly. We'll look at faulty forensic science, false confessions, and mandatory minimum prison sentences. Season two of Sworn is underway, and it's available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the high-stakes world of crime and justice, understanding the legal system is not optional. It's critical. Hi, I'm Philip Holloway, host of the podcast Sworn from Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. Last season, we looked at a number of crimes and cases that highlighted issues in our legal system. This season, we have a new approach. We're tackling the problems directly. We'll look at faulty forensic science, false confessions, and mandatory minimum prison sentences. Season two of Sworn is underway, and it's available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.